gospel that he would bring goes back to the very beginning, to those initial moments when the first rays of dawn break through the darkness of night. The narrative before us today is the first glimmer of light announcing the promised day of redemption had finally arrived. So we're continuing this morning our study, our Advent study of Luke chapters 1 and 2 that we started last week. And today we're going to consider chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. So if you have a copy of God's Word open, please follow along as I read for us. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the door of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn the many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. As we move through this passage, we, I think that there are four scenes or four movements uh, of the passage from one to the other as it, as it moves all the way through its, to its conclusion in verse 25. And what I want to do is use those four scenes as sort of the, the basic outline as we kind of consider this passage today. So the first scene that we see as this narrative opens is an introduction. Luke is introducing us to the time period in which these events take place and also to two of the main characters in this narrative. So let's think first about the, the time period. We have an introduction to the time period. Uh, Luke says in verse 5, and he re- refers to the time period as, by referencing Herod, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Herod ruled as king over, the, over several Roman provinces that encompassed much of the territory of ancient Israel. And we've got a map that you can kind of see there what the domain that he rules over. And that land continued to be ruled over, or continued to be inhabited by the descendants of the, of the ancient Israelites, the, Jew, the Jewish people. But Herod was not the legitimate king of the Jews. He was partly Jewish, but he did not descend from King David's lineage as, as prescribed by the Old Testament. 
even more than that, he was part Idumean. Idumeans were the sort of, at this time, the contemporary or the descendants of the ancient Edomites. Uh, the Edomites were one of the enemies of ancient Israel uh, that go back all the way even to the story of Abraham. There's animosity there. There's a sense of hatred that this man who's ruling over them is actually related to their, their ancient enemies. And finally, he was a puppet king for the Roman Empire. Rome had installed him as their proxy to keep the peace and to protect Roman interests in that land. The Jews hated Herod, and they yearned for the day of his overthrow. And as they were yearning for the day of his overthrow, they were also at the same time yearning for independence. They were yearning for the day in which God would reestablish David's king to rule over them and to usher in an era of, of peace and blessing as, 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 as had existed when David was king himself in the Old Testament era. They hated, the Jews hated Herod, partly because Herod terrorized the Jews. His erratic violence, his self-serving oppressive practices, his enforcement of Rome's agenda all raised the Jews' ire against Herod. But there was nothing that the Jews could do, could do about it. They, they were helpless with regard to Herod's rule. There was nothing that they could do to remove him from power. And so Herod reigned for 33 years, from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. During Herod's reign, we could describe the country or describe the land as, as having a, a deep darkness blanketing the people. A darkness of gloom, a darkness of, uh, of despair, a darkness of anguish. For God's people, this was the midnight hour. God appeared to be absent. He appeared to be removed. He appeared to be distant. He seemed to have turned His back upon His own people. They were feeling the, the full weight of His judgment. So this time, these 30-something years of Herod's reign were the blackest part of a somber, moonless night for the Jews. Now the good news is, the darkest hour just precedes the dawn. Near the end of Herod's reign, the first glimmers of light, the first sign of the hope of God's redemption begin to pierce through the, the darkness to announce that God's salvation was coming for His people. That glimmer of hope appears in the introduction to two of the main characters. I said that there, were, so there was an introduction of sorts here in the beginning. So we're introduced both to the time period and also to these two figures, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest. He was a descendant of Aaron, he was, who was Israel's first high priest. And as priest, Zechariah would have had responsibility to serve at the temple. He would have responsibility to, to help lead the worship that took place at the temple, all of the, the specifics that were required by the Old Testament law. More specifically, we're told that Zechariah was part of the division of Abijah. Uh, King David, during his reign, brought a great system of organization to every aspect of the worship system. He was preparing to build the temple, and so he organized much of what would be needed for temple worship. As part of the or this organization uh, project, uh, King David arranged the priests into 24 divisions. He took all the priests and arranged them into 24 categories, 24 groupings. And each division would be required to perform one week of service at the temple twice per year. So twice per year, in a, in a very organized fashion, each division would come and serve. They would serve one week, then they would go home, and then when their next time of service would come up, they would go and they would serve that second week. 
two weeks out of the year, a week at a time, according to the prescribed schedule. Elizabeth is also introduced, that's Zachariah's wife, and she too is a descendant of Aaron. It refers to her as the daughters of, from the daughters of Aaron, from the lineage of Aaron himself. So because Zechariah and Elizabeth shared a common priestly lineage, their marriage represented for Israel the idealized marriage, the ideal Israelite marriage. You can look at Elizabeth and, and, and Zechariah and see the ideal of what an Israelite couple should look like. They were, they were blessed. Their marriage signified God's favor upon them. Furthermore, we're told in verse 6 that they were both righteous before God. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments of the statutes of the Lord. That meant their lives reflected a moral righteousness. They lived rightly before God. They faithfully obeyed God's law. As a regular practice of their lives, they were living examples of righteousness. They lived the right way. They lived the way that God required. They were paragons of covenant faithfulness. They were model Israelites in this regard. Therefore, they had God's approval. They were righteous before the Lord. God approved of them. And therefore, they should have been recipients of God's greatest blessings. But instead of being, of showing a life of high favor, instead of showing that they were indeed receiving all these great blessings from God as the Old Testament promised, it appeared that they were subject to His most severe curse. Notice in verse seven that they had no children they were childless elizabeth the wife was barren and their advanced age so they were both advanced in years that made it impossible for them to have any children of their own so from the outside it appeared that there was something wrong with them and especially elizabeth being receiving the brunt of the stigma of, of barrenness it appeared that they had done something wrong they had sinned grievously against god or that they were were living a sinful lifestyle that they were reprobate in, in how they lived before god the irony is that their situation did not meet reality perception did not meet reality israel's most privileged and faithful couple suffered the most shameful reproach in a way, Elizabeth and Zechariah here, though they are historical beings and then they are experiencing these very real conditions, is a very real situation, in a very real way, they represent the spiritual condition of the people of Israel, of their generation. The Jews were God's highly favored covenant people. God set them apart to be a righteous people. To be a people who walked blamelessly before Him. To be a people who obeyed His law. They were to be the recipients of God's greatest blessing. And instead, they were languishing under the reproach of His judgment. The faithlessness and rebellion of their ancestors had put them in this situation. And so instead of thriving under the rule of one of David's descendants, they were, a, they were suffering oppression at the hands of a foreign power. Though they clung to the promises of the Old Covenant, it appeared that God had turned His back upon them. It seemed that, they, that God had become distant, that God had moved away from them, that His judgment had come upon them. So spiritually and theologically, we could say that a deep darkness had descended upon God's people. Their only hope was that God would remember His promises, 
So he would remember what he had promised in the Old Testament. He would act upon those promises and bring redemption. He would pull them out of this situation, out of this oppression, out of this darkness. And so there was a, a vibrant longing. There was a hopeful longing among the people. This longing for redemption saturated their hearts. They were expecting, they were hoping that God would indeed move to bring them salvation. The deep darkness that Israel faced near the end of Herod's reign is not unlike the deep darkness that we ourselves experience in our hearts. In our natural condition, our hearts are dark. A deep darkness pervades our lives. Remember that God created human beings to have a relationship with Him. To have a loving relationship with Him where we would love Him and obey Him and serve Him and worship Him and be faithful to Him. And He would love us and bless us and give Himself to us. But that promising relationship was broken by our own sin and rebellion against God. And for that sin, then a deep darkness descended upon us. And we languished. We languished in gloom and despair. Again, because of our own sinfulness, because of our own unrighteousness, we lived in the deepest, blackest midnight. In our sinfulness, we were beginning to suffer the very beginnings of God's judgment for our sin, and we were waiting miserably for that day when the full weight of God's judgment would come against us on the final day. In God's kindness at the right time in history, the first rays of light brought the hope of God's salvation. The dawn of redemption pierced through the dark. It made way for the brightness and glory of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we see here that as Luke relates to us the setting in those first few verses, verses 5 through 7, it is a dark night, it is a midnight on Israel's clock. But with the next scene, the light begins to break through. We move to the second scene then, verses 8 through 17, which provides for us an announcement. An announcement is made. And we see as in verse 8 that Zechariah is actually in the temple now serving. So we've moved from context to, to situation, to circumstance. Uh, 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 Zechariah's division, the division of Abijah, it was their assigned week for service. So Zechariah is fulfilling his priestly responsibilities in the temple. And because each priestly division had about 750 priests in it, so you have 750 priests available to serve, you can't have all 750 serve at one time. So each priest served about one day of the week. Each division was there for the week, and each priest served about one day of the week. So this is Zechariah's day. It is his day, and again, we have plenty of priests, and so we have many responsibilities. And and we see in verse verse 9 that the, the lot had fallen upon Zechariah. The lot being the Old Testament means of discerning God's will. It was God's chosen purpose to have Zechariah in the temple on that day burning incense to the Lord at the altar of incense. And I've got a, a diagram too up there, Kat, if you want to show it, of the temple. We can see here in the, I don't know if you can see my little flashlight there, but right there is the front room of the temple. And right there towards the back of that room is the altar of incense. That is where Zechariah is ministering that's his task is to burn the incense before the lord now it was a very appropriate thing the crowd had gathered around outside to pray and these two things are happening simultaneously it's very very appropriate as this sweet smelling fragrance goes up before the lord the people outside are praying they're lifting up their prayers to god the rising incense paralleled 
the people offering their prayers to God. In fact, the scriptures say that it oftentimes associates prayers with incense. So because of the prestige of, of burning the incense here, a priest could only fulfill this function at, for one, at one moment in his entire priestly service. So this is Zachariah's moment. This is his day. It's his week that he shows up for he's supposed to. On this day, it's his day of service. The lot appoints him to burn the incense. This is the only time he'll be ever able to do this. And it is at that moment that God has sovereignly positioned Zechariah to receive a divine announcement. And with this message, we see the first light of the dawn of God's redemption. It is piercing through the horizon right now as Zechariah is at the altar of incense, burning the incense. Because it is in that moment, as Zechariah is offering the incense, that the angel Gabriel appears to him. The angel comes from God, bringing a divine message for Zechariah, a message of good news. And the center point of that good news is that Zechariah's barren wife, childless wife, will give birth to a son whom Zechariah will name John. Now, we can understand, and I, I should, I guess, point this out in verse 19, uh, Gabriel calls this message good news. He said, I was sent to you and to bring, I, I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. The announcement of John's birth, the announcement that Elizabeth will conceive a son, that Zachariah will call him John. This is good news. And we can understand how this is good news to Zachariah and Elizabeth, right? Elizabeth is barren. She's unable to conceive children. She's unable to, to bear children. They are childless. And they are both advanced in years, which means that they are beyond the age of producing any children for themselves by natural means. So Gabriel's announcement means that God is going to perform a miracle for them. God is going to do the impossible. He is going to give them a son that they could not produce by themselves. Not only would John give them the blessing of, uh, of just having a child, a blessing that would now befit their righteous condition. Remember, they are righteous, they are blameless, they walk before the Lord, they are highly favored, but this barrenness was a stigma. Now, having a child would be a huge blessing. They have a child. Not only would they have the blessing of a child, but this child would take away the shameful reproach that stigmatized Elizabeth. In fact, she mentions this in verse 25, that, that God took away her reproach, that God lifted it from her. She now is a, a recipient of God's blessing. She experiences the joy of God's goodness, the joy of this miracle. But even more than the blessing of finally having a child, their child would be an added blessing because he would be specially consecrated to God. Imagine this for yourself. Imagine that you are, are having a child. Maybe, maybe you've, you've experienced infertility. Or maybe you're a young couple. And you, you remember those days when you wanted a child and finally you, you learned you were going to be having a child and just the great blessing that that child would bring to you and the joy of those first months of pregnancy and as the child was born, the joy that child brought to you. Imagine now knowing that, that God is going to set that child apart for something special. Wouldn't that be an even greater blessing, right? Not only do I have a child, but my child, God's going to call my child to, to be a great missionary and to, and to take the gospel to a place that's never been heard before. 
or God is going to raise my child up to be a, a CEO of a powerful company and do great good with, with the resources that, that, that come to that company and do great good for his kingdom. That would be awesome, I think, to have that blessing that God was going to do something special with my child. He was going to set that child apart. Well, John is going to be set apart for God. He was going to be specially consecrated. In verse 15, the angel says that John would be great before the Lord. That is, that God was going to set John apart for his special purposes. God, John would walk in God's righteousness. He would take upon himself a divinely ordained mission. John's life would be lived in service of the Lord. God would give special favor to John for his faithfulness to that mission. That consecration would be noticeably, notable, noticeable outwardly, right? You would be able to see it. How would we know that John's going to be set apart? Well, he has to abstain from alcohol, right? The uh, angel mentions that in verse 15. He would abide, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit would be upon him from the time that he was conceived in the womb. He would possess the spirit and power of the Old Testament prophet Elijah as he carried out the ministry that God had assigned to him, a, a prophecy that had, that had been designated in the Old Testament. So this child was indeed a special blessing. John's name in Hebrew means God has been gracious. And indeed, the miracle of this child was a sign of God's grace. Not only was God giving Zachariah and Elizabeth a son, not only was he performing a miracle to give them a son that seemed impossible, but God was setting this child apart for himself. God was setting him apart for a special ministry of God's choosing. So this is good news, right? This child, the announcement of this child is good news. But as much as John's birth represents good news to Zechariah and Elizabeth, his birth is also good news for all of God's people. Do you see verse 14? The angel says to Zechariah, you will have joy and gladness. You will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. And I think that means there are more than just people saying, man, that's great, right? Wade and Stacey had a baby a few months ago, right? We were all so happy they had a child, right? We were overjoyed. We've been expecting that with them and hoping with that, with, with that for them. And we were praying with them. And when the child came, we all rejoiced because they were being blessed. That's part of it. I think that there were people going to look at, John, at Elizabeth and Zechariah and say, man, that's awesome. That's awesome for you. We're so happy for you. But I think it means more than that. They were going to take joy because something significant was, was going to come from the son for them. God was going to be gracious to all of his people. And in fact, God was setting John apart for a unique ministry, a prophetic ministry that would fulfill God's promise of redemption to his people. So like the Old Testament prophets, John was going to call God's people to repentance. In fact, you see in verses 16 and 17 that the angel there says twice that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And then later on, he says in verse 17, that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Twice in two verses, the word turn. In the Hebrew idea, the Hebrew mind, the Hebrew language, the word turn is the word for repentance. Here, John would, like the Old Testament prophets, call God's people to repentance. You remember in the Old Testament, the Israelites were, were always rebellious, faithless, disobeyed the covenant, broke God's law. But what would God do? As a sign of his grace, he would send them a prophet. And the prophet would proclaim God's word. The prophet would call them to repent. 
to turn away from their sinfulness and return to the Lord, to return to their covenant commitment. Though Israel failed miserably to heed that call, God would be gracious over and over and over again in Israel's history to send those prophets. Well, eventually God stopped sending the prophets. Because of their repeated wickedness, God stopped. But he made a promise that he would once again, at his appointed time, at the right time, he would raise up a prophet like the Old Testament prophet Elijah. He would send a prophet before the day of his final judgment to call them once again out of their sin and to bring them back into a new relationship with God. And the promise that God made in the Old Testament is fulfilled, begins to be fulfilled, in the person of John. This is John the Baptist we're talking about here. As we'll read later on in Luke's Gospel, John would call the people of Israel to repent of their sins and return to covenant relationship with God. Well, that repentance, that turning to God, would prepare God's people to receive the redemption that He was sending to them. They were not prepared. They were not ready. So God was going to send this prophet to call them to repent, to call them to come to him in preparation for the Messiah. So by John's preaching, the people would repent. They would turn to God. Their hearts would be inclined toward God. Their lives would begin to move in a Godward direction. John's prophetic ministry would make God's people ready for the Lord and ready for his redemption. So John would be like those prophets of old. He would be especially like the prophet Elijah, who it says in verse 16 and 17, that he would be, he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. John would be like them. He would, his ministry would be characterized like their ministry, but it would be different. It would stand apart from theirs. Because John's ministry would signify a new day on God's redemptive calendar. John's, the announcement of John's birth would signal the dawn of the redemption that God had promised in the Old Testament. A redemption tied to a new covenant. In fact, John's ministry begins the fulfillment of those prophecies that God made to his people in the Old Testament. Consider Malachi, Malachi uh, ver, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destru- destruction. So there, John, coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, fulfills the promise that God would send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He even paraphrases and quotes verse 6, that John would turn the hearts of the children toward the the fathers, and the hearts of the fathers toward their children, just as Elijah had been prophesied to do in Malachi chapter 4. Malachi 3.1 the prophet there says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for, before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. What is John's purpose? He is to be a messenger. He is coming to prepare the way. As it says in verse 17, that John would make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He is the forerunner. He is the one who is going to prepare God's people for the work of redemption that's coming in the Messiah. So John is the fulfillment of what God had promised his people in the Old Testament. John's arrival is the dawn of redemption. And the angel's announcement to Zechariah of Elizabeth's pregnancy are the first glimmers of light breaking through the horizon. 
So again, John's name means God has been gracious and his arrival is a sign of God's grace. God was once again being gracious to his people. The miracle child was a sign of God's grace because through this child, God would begin preparing his people for the arrival of the Messiah who would do the work of redemption, who would actually make it possible. So John's birth should be an occasion of great rejoicing, as Gabriel says in verse 14. The God's people should greatly rejoice because it was a sign that God was beginning to act, that God was beginning to fulfill the ancient promises that he made to his people who are living in darkness. So as the angel testifies, John is the answer to Zechariah's prayer. Did you get that in verse 10? Sorry, in verse uh, 13? But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. This announcement is in response to Zechariah's prayer. A prayer not so much for a child, because Zechariah, I think, realizes by this point, they're advanced in age, it's impossible for them to have a child. But he is praying for his people. He's a priest. He's interceding for them. They're dwelling in darkness. They're living under the gloom and the oppression and the despair of, of the Roman subjugation. They are suffering the judgment of God for their sin hundreds of years earlier. They are languishing. And so here is faithful Zechariah praying that God would bring about his promised redemption, that God would fulfill the promises he made through the prophet. God heard Zechariah's prayer. And now, by God's sovereign grace and power, that day had come. And Zechariah's would be the first light of that day. He would be the sign that God was moving to bring salvation for his people. But it's interesting to me that Zechariah did not believe the angel's news. That brings us to the third element here, the third scene in this passage, verses 18 through 22. Zechariah didn't believe the angel's news. In fact, in his mind, Elizabeth's ability to conceive a son was impossible because they were well advanced in years. Zechariah's disbelief then prompted him to ask God for another sign, some kind of confirmation that this indeed would be true. And so Gabriel reaffirms the truthfulness of the divine message. In fact, the word angel here just simply means messenger. Gabriel is a messenger from the Lord. His message then is not his own. It comes from the Lord. God had spoken his word through the angel to Zechariah, and God's word was true. It would happen. It would come to pass. On that basis alone, Zechariah could have assurance that the thing that the angel had revealed to him would indeed happen. He had God's word, and that word was sufficient for Zechariah to believe. Furthermore, this message was a message of good news in verse 19 where Gabriel says, I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And the word good news there is the Greek word that we often translate as gospel. This word is gospel. What I have revealed to you is gospel. It's part of the gospel message. What would be good news for Zechariah was good news for all of God's people. Because in Elizabeth's pregnancy, God was fulfilling the word that he had promised throughout the Old Testament period. 
And that good news was that God was beginning the process of redeeming his people. The birth of John was the sign that Zechariah was seeking. It was the sign that God was going to fulfill his promises. Because again, it's not yet, right? There's still more to come. Zechariah is just the beginning. But he is the promise. He is the sign that what God starts, he would bring all the way through. That Messiah was indeed coming to bring about redemption. So when the angel announces Elizabeth's soon coming pregnancy, Zachariah should have thought, it's happening. It's finally happening. God is answering his, his word. He is answering his promises. He is fulfilling them. But instead, he did not believe. And so God gave Zachariah a second sign of confirmation. Zachariah would remain Mute would become mute, and he would remain mute until the day of John's circumcision. Now, Zechariah's muteness here represents in part God's judgment for his unbelief. Zechariah did not believe, so the judgment for Zechariah's failure to believe is the fact he would not be able to speak. But I think Zechariah's muteness signifies something more, both to Elizabeth and Zechariah, but also ultimately to God's people. It is a reminder that God has spoken. He had spoken to Zechariah about what he would do. He had spoken to his people through the prophets about what he would do. And God, by closing Zechariah's mouth, is saying, I will do it. God depended solely upon himself. He didn't need Zechariah's belief. He didn't need Zechariah's confirmation. Certainly didn't need his unbelief, right? God needed no human confirmation nor would he allow any human efforts or any human words to undermine his word. God had spoken, and his was the last word. And so he closes Zechariah's mouth. I will have the last word in this matter, Zechariah, not you. In addition, the next word that Zechariah speaks when his tongue is loosened, a little bit later on in chapter 1, is a word of thanksgiving and praise to God for what he had accomplished in fulfilling his promises. That's what he should have said at that moment in the temple. He gets to say it finally when John is born and circumcised. But because he didn't say it then, God closed his mouth. Because the only thing that should come from Zechariah's mouth here is glory and praise and thanksgiving for what he had done. God was fulfilling his promises, and that should have resulted in a great word of praise to God. Now, Zechariah's muteness is a temporary Muteness. It will last the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy and it will only end when John is born and circumcised. It is a sign that those Zacharias did not believe would indeed show that God was fulfilling his word in his time. God is sovereign and he exercises his sovereignty over time, over events, and over people. Zachariah couldn't stop that. And the fact that we know that Zachariah was indeed mute... We have the witness of the crowd that was there to pray. They were all gathered outside, right? And they're waiting anxiously for Zechariah to come out because the priest, normally when the priests are done serving in the temple, they go out and they announce the blessing, the Aaronic blessing, right? The Lord uh, make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to, 20, uh, 24 to 26. The priests are going to come out and announce that. And there they're waiting and waiting and waiting. They can't leave until they receive this ironic blessing. And then when Zechariah finally does show up, he can't speak it. 
And they all took notice that there was something going on. In fact, the word, they, they said that he had a vision. The word for vision there is supernatural revelation. They understood that something supernatural had happened inside the holy place. And it had caused Zechariah to no longer be able to speak. And so they bear witness to what God was doing in Zechariah's life, but also what God was doing in the life of his people. So Zechariah's unbelief here is a call for us to believe God, to trust his word. God has indeed spoken, and what he has promised he will accomplish. We can trust God because we see the promises that he made being fulfilled. Even in this story, these things really took place. They actually happened. So when you're struggling in your own life about whether or not to trust God, or whether or not to trust these words that He's given to us, see how they have been fulfilled. Trust the fact that He has fulfilled His promises and that those promises that are still outstanding will be accomplished in the right time. While we are waiting We need to rest in the promises of God. We need to trust confidently in the truthfulness of the word that he has given to us by faithfully living according to those promises. And so with that, then the story comes to its resolution. Verses 23 to 24, Zechariah finishes his priestly service. He goes home. And after some time, it's not specified how long the time was, Elizabeth conceived her son, John, And it says that she goes into hiding for, she hid herself for five months. And the reasons are not entirely clear. Uh, We do know that in the next, in this uh, story and later on in chapter one, that after Mary has received, uh, after she has conceived the Christ child, that she goes to visit Elizabeth. And Elizabeth there acknowledges that Christ is in her womb. Uh, John the Baptist, who is also in uh, Elizabeth's womb, leaps for joy. They are testifying. So, in other words, their first interaction publicly with people comes when they actually see Christ. They, they, they see Mary, in whom, who is bearing the Christ, for the first time. That seems significant to me, that God was kind of putting her away, putting her aside for a while, so that her first interaction with other people would be to bear witness to Christ. Testify to him. But in the meantime, in these five months, while she is hiding herself, she gives herself over to praising God. She says in verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach from among people. She acknowledges here that her pregnancy is solely the work of the Lord. That his work in her life is a work of his sovereignty and grace and wisdom and power. Her ability to conceive a child was beyond her control, but God acted supernaturally to make it a reality. By his work, God took away Elizabeth's reproach. She no longer suffered the stigma of being barren. Elizabeth's conception didn't just take away her reproach. It took away also the reproach of all of God's people who suffered in the darkness of gloom and despair and anguish. For the birth of her child would make them ready for God's salvation. The birth of her child would prepare the way for the one who would make salvation a reality. And this is what God's redemption does, right? It takes away our reproach. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were once condemned to eternal judgment because of the sins that we committed. We were enslaved to that sin. We couldn't break free of it. That sin and that death and that condemnation brought upon us a great, great reproach. But God pitied us and he loved us 
And he purposed to take away our reproach and redeem us. And so, how did he do it? He initiated a plan of action that would lead to the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would die for our sins. He would cancel our condemnation. He would take away our reproach once and for all. In its place, he would reconcile us to God. He would inaugurate a new covenant. He would give to us eternal life. And he would place upon us a glory that could never be diminished. So like Elizabeth, we have no other response than to praise the God who looked upon us, who watched faithfully and carefully over his word, and who redeemed us from death so that we might be his people forever. So if you've ever been to a concert, when you hear the orchestra warming up, it means the concert's about to begin, right? When you smell the roast in the oven, it means it's almost dinner time. When Chief Osceola and Renegade streak down the field and plant the spear at midfield, it means its kickoff is just moments away, right? When the angel appears to Zechariah and Elizabeth conceives a child, we can see that the redemptive drama is about to unfold. It's happening. It's really happening. God is beginning to act. He is working in history to fulfill his ancient promises. And what he starts, he will finish. He will carry the events of history all the way to the end until his purposes are finally accomplished. What starts here in these opening verses of Luke are fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus is still our hope of redemption. Jesus is still the hope of our redemption. It's a redemption that he accomplished 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross and was raised again from the dead. And even though we still await the full reality of that redemption to be fulfilled, we have the hope that what he started will come to its final conclusion. Right now we are living between the times. And so we must walk in righteousness as Zechariah and Elizabeth did. We must trust God's word We must pray for God to do His will. We must be pliable instruments in His hands as He uses us to accomplish His purposes. And we must hope in Him resolutely. And one day, in God's sovereign and perfect timing, all that Christ accomplished will be realized and we will live in the fullness and glory of His redemption and we will rejoice eternally. May God make that day a reality. May he hasten that day for us. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for this narrative. And I, I confess, Lord, my own sinfulness sometimes in wondering why we even have this. I mean, it's John the Baptist. We need Jesus. But yet, Lord, it's a reminder to us that you were, and you were acting upon those things you had promised centuries before. That you are a God who indeed watches over his word, who will accomplish it. And that these things that we've read today are the, are the first signs, they're the first glimmers of the coming sun who would shine in all of his glory and bring about the promised redemption. He would bring a new day in your redemptive calendar in which we would no longer bear the weight of the condemnation of our sin. We would no longer be stuck in the crosshairs of your judgment, but we would be brought into a new relationship with you. Oh God, we are thankful for what you have done. We are thankful that it 
has been accomplished, that we can look back and we can see these very things fulfilled. And understand that as we still wait, although further along the timeline, we are still waiting for the fullness of that redemption to be made sight for us, that we would experience its reality and its fullness. God, help us to trust, help us to pray, help us to wait, help us to walk in righteousness, help us to hope. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done. We pray that you would bring that day to pass. Hasten that day, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would the, uh, those who are coming to help this morning uh, serve at the table, go ahead and come at this time. What we celebrate here at the table is the rest of the story, right? We just looked at part of it this morning. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This table is the zenith. If the text we read and say this morning is the dawn, the beginning of the dawn, the first light of the dawn, this table represents for us the zenith because Jesus came to give up his life as a sacrifice for us, to bring that redemption to pass. This is how it had to happen. Those are the beginnings we read in Luke this morning. This is how it was accomplished. That Christ would be born. He would enter this world. He would grow up. He would live a sinless life. He would go to a cross. And he would be raised again from the dead. And so to teach his disciples about that redemption. It says that on the night before he was betrayed, he celebrated the Last Supper with them, the Passover meal, and took the elements of the table and understood its significance in himself. He took the bread, he broke it, he gave it to them. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of my blood shed for you. Blood that is shed for the remission of your sins, the forgiveness of your sins. The blood that brings into reality a new covenant, a new way of relating to God. This is the redemption that we have. The broken body, the poor blood of Christ, that allows our sin to be cleansed and us to enter into that relationship with the Lord for which he has created and saved us. Let us walk as we eat the bread and drink the cup. Let us walk in the redemption prepared for us by Christ.